Hello and welcome to Anarchy SF, the podcast companion to the Anarchy SF website. My name is Yanai and with me as always is Eden. It is I. Eden, how are you? I'm okay. You just asked me that like five minutes ago before we started recording. And I said, same old, but I think at this point, same old <laughs> encapsulates so many things that are like part of the new normal, as cliche that, as that is. Yeah, it's so much fun when like the thing you get to be excited about is a fascist coup failing. Yeah, I mean... Like that's the bow. A postmodern coup, maybe we should call it. Yeah, I like that, thinking about it as a postmodern coup. A postmodern delirium. Yeah. We can't even get good coups anymore. <laughs> they used to be about something, you know? <laughs> What if we made a coup about nothing? Yeah, I think there's so many... So recently I discovered Theory Instagram, otherwise known as okay. Theorygram, which is like a bunch of accounts making philosophy memes and jokes. But unlike like okay. on Facebook, the philosophy meme pages are mostly around continental philosophy or mm-hmm. Greek philosophy. But on Instagram, it's all the weirdos. It's like Donna Haraway, cyborg, postmodernist, <laughs> delusion, psychopaths, basically. And they make like really crazy memes. And one of the bigger ones is fake Seinfeld, which is like Seinfeld screenshots with sometimes real Seinfeld dialogue, but sometimes also edits. And mm-hmm. it's hilarious. So that your comment reminded me like that line is so brilliant because I think it really cuts to the core of what Seinfeld has to say about postmodernism and it has a lot to say about it I think so yeah it's a coup about nothing yeah so we actually have a kind of revolutionary movie to talk about today and it's Elysium released in 2015 13 13 yep I don't know why I remember 15 it's an action movie like that's what you should expect going into it Mm -hmm. it's invested in being an action movie and i think it makes a really good parallel to marvel movies which i think were like dominating the action scene at its time so a lot of what i have to say will kind of compare with them and it's interesting because we record a podcast that deals with the ideology of a lot of the pieces and marvel movies are notoriously vapid creations that sucked all of the ideology out of somewhat you know progressive comics and this movie does something different or something more ideological i think it didn't do very well in theaters and the director has expressed some regrets about the movie he thinks he could have done it better maybe we should delay for a second on the director because he is neil bloomkamp who went on to also do district nine yeah which did enjoy critical acclaim. He was actually alongside his wife, which co-wrote it with him. He was nominated for the Oscar for the screenplay. Yeah, and I think that also deals with, well, immigration, right? Like, that's the big theme there. So these films are interesting because they all have, and Chappie as well, which he made after District 9, have the roots in four short films that Bloomkamp made before he became a full-on director. He started his career as an animator, but he was working on like demo reels and stuff like that. And he had a bunch of shorts, which he would use to pitch all sorts of people, which eventually is what got him the partnership with Peter Jackson. And they they worked together on a different movie, which was uh, canceled. And then Jackson decided to green light District 9. But Elysium as well, they all came from the same period in his life and the same kind of ideas that were percolating in his head. And District 9, I would say, in many ways, is a superior version of Elysium. Hmm. It touches on many of the same tropes, and it has a very similar 
aesthetic, which we'll talk about in a sec, but it does a better job of using the storyline to discuss its ideas. And also, I think, has more nuance about these ideas. Mm -hmm. But I'll talk about that in length when we get to the actual themes and concepts which interested me in this movie. Yeah, so I really enjoy this movie. I think the action can sometimes be a little bit messy. I really like two things that they do. One of them is that they kind of highlight the action by having just a myriad of ways for these people to fight each other. Like, every fight scene uses weapons that like function completely differently. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they have weapons that track people, sometimes they fight with exoskeletons, like and when you compare it with Marvel movies that are basically like just a big guy beating people up, <laughs> I find this more interesting. And I also like the choreography that is sometimes a little bit awkward, which I find endearing. Like some things just don't work. There's a really nice scene when like the protagonist is fighting two people and one of them rushes him and he beats him and then another one comes and he tries to throw one of them against the other but like he just misses like the guy just lands (laughs) on the floor and it's not it's just inconsequential for the resolution of the combat but it's just like he made the move and it didn't work i don't know the marvel movies always portray action in such a precise way I have to say that I didn't expect you to take this into like an anti-Marvel perspective. <laughs> yeah, I'm which sorry. Is, I also think like, I mean, I get where you're coming from and there's definitely a lot of discussion to be had about the sanitization, not only of comic books, but also of films by the MCU and its style of storytelling and filming. But I do think that this movie came out at a time before the worst of the quote-unquote crimes, that's probably overselling it, transgressions, that's the word I was looking for, made by the MCU movie against filmography. Like, this movie came out before Age of Ultron, before, like, that tier or phase of Marvel movies, which had to amp up everything. And I actually think that a lot of what Elysium does with its action is kind of similar to that mid-era of the MCU, in the sense that it uses what I'd like to call like a pivoting camera. So it's nailed into one place and it pivots around the fight, showing Mm -hmm. you everything from the same perspective, but in different ways. It spins around the actors a lot, not like the Matrix, right? But still very over-the-shoulder kind of view, which Marvel also utilized in several of the key scenes. But I think in general, I agree with you that it takes a very different approach to action for sure and storytelling as well but what i would like to discuss more in depth and we can do both of course it's not contradictory is i actually want to compare elysium to cyberpunk literature and films because Mm. i will make the case that this is a cyberpunk movie but because it doesn't have the tired and cliche aesthetic of the cyberpunk movie it doesn't get cataloged as such and this might have led to its bad reception because people did not know where to place this movie on the genre wheel, if you'd like. Yeah, you could imagine this like using different versions of punk. Like, I think the closest thing is diesel punk. So we can get into it now because I think it's before the concepts, right? It's more of the aesthetic of the film. Yeah. So let's first establish what I mean when I say cyberpunk or what we, we all should be meaning when we say cyberpunk. And then we can discuss like other punks and what this movie does that is of cyberpunk and what it does that is not of cyberpunk. So 
Does that sound like a plan? Yeah, yeah. Before we get into the concepts. So, cyberpunk. Cyberpunk is notoriously hard to define because it's punk. I mean, I guess we should start with punk, which is also notoriously hard to define because it has different meanings for different people. For example, a lot of people on the left will tell you that punk is inherently leftist. It's this movement of youths in the late 70s and the early 80s all the way to today, which rebel against social norms. And they replace things like American excess and American puritanism with anger, anti-consumerism, and also socialist and anarchist practices like communal spaces. And yeah, a lot of anti-Margaret Thatcher songs, a lot of anti-George Bush. Right. And also beyond the music, also in their way of life, right? Like living in squats, doing mutual aid, being straight edge, rejecting recreational drugs, especially alcohol and stuff like that, and also rejecting aesthetic norms, right? Shaving mm-hmm. your head, wearing dirty clothes, ripping up your jackets, and so on. And then other people will say that punk is just that last part. It's an aesthetic. It's the ripped up jackets. It's the dirty showrooms. It's the close cut hair. It's tattoos that are simple and aggressive, and it's an attitude, right? It's a mm-hmm. fuck you, I'm going to do what I want to do. We're not going to take it, right? That's the anthem of that kind of like movement. We're going to do whatever we want and fuck all of you. Others would say that punk is right-wing. There are vast movements, especially in Europe, because in the U.S., they were thankfully stamped out. Maybe one of the only victories that the left had in the last 50 years, I would say. Like mm-hmm. major victories. But in Europe, there are like vast movements of Nazi punks, otherwise known as skinheads. Although yeah. skinheads is not necessarily Nazi. There's also a lot of struggle around that term because skinheads can mean different things. But those ideas of fuck you and going against the norm can also, of course, drag you towards reactionary and right-wing based ideologies so for our purposes when talking about cyber or steam or diesel or there are millions like atom and ray all these punks we are looking at punk as an aesthetic devoid of a necessary political statement you can be cyberpunk and you can be diesel punk without being on the left or on the right you can do both Mm -hmm. but what we're taking is a certain grittiness, a certain fuck you in the aesthetic of the work we're talking about. And there's always going to be an element of a struggle against authority mm-hmm. or an attempt to step outside of it. So if we take other works to clarify our point, other than Elysium, which we're going to talk about now, we can think about Dishonored, which we might cover in its own episode in the future, which is diesel punk right? The Dunwall mm-hmm. wall is very dirty, it's crumbling, and you play a protagonist which goes against the entire social norms of the setting. Steampunk, of course, has a million examples. If you think about Neil Gaiman's Starlight, if you think about... Yeah. William Gibson, by the way, also made Steampunk. He made the Difference Engine, where the Babbage machine becomes the computer instead of add a Lovelace's solution. Mm-hmm. And that leads to a Steam-based society. And of course, Cyberpunk is all over, including the game Cyberpunk, which I'll have more things to say about when we get into the concepts. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And Neuromancer, of course, The Sprawl, which are all William Gibson works, and many, many more. I think Cyberpunk is the one that needs least explaining. Yeah. Now, when we look at Elysium, 
and we try to categorize it into one of these genres, I agree with you that Diesel seems like a good alternative to Cyberpunk, but Diesel Punk is usually a way more dirty than this film because oil is the resource that we're talking about and therefore everything is covered in oil. Also in Diesel Punk, there are often themes that are naval because Diesel was so associated with turn of the 20th century, naval transport, you Mm -hmm. know, like old ships and stuff like that. And it's a lot smokier. You need to have like that oppressive smog from the factories and so on to really get that Diesel Punk feel. Now, this film also doesn't fit the cyberpunk aesthetic 100% because there's no neon and sex doesn't play a part in this film at all. Like, there's yeah. literally no, there's not a sex scene and there's. Well, the, yeah. I'll argue that there's one usage of sex, but very little. That's fair. Yeah, it's less central than other big Hollywood action films. The love interest is more a duty kind of thing rather than yes. an endless love kind of thing. Or sexual love. So those are themes that are very important for cyberpunk. But what this film does have, which is very important for cyberpunk and I think qualifies it, is one, body modification. Radical body modification. Yeah. The difference between modified humans and robots, it has a lot of very meticulously designed machinery. The crafts, the weapons has a lot Mm -hmm. of weapons, different weapons that are designed to be functional and believable. And the entire last 40 minutes of the film, which take place on Elysium, on the space station, are extremely cyberpunk. And if you wanted to like just seal the deal on this whole thing, the last battle scene has Sakura trees. Yeah. So once you have like a guy with a katana fighting another guy and there's Sakura trees in the background, that's cyberpunk. Yeah. So, one last thing I'll say, and then I'll shut up. Of course, I don't care about saying that this is cyberpunk just to say that. Now, the reason that I'm going for the cyberpunk tag is because it opens a host of questions. Yeah. It gives us a pivot and a latching on point to discuss this movie from a cyberpunk angle and comparing it to other cyberpunk works. Yeah. So, let's do a rundown of the plot of the movie. Spoiler us. Basically, you have Matt Damon playing the protagonist. He grows up in a poor area and he gets a condition because of a workplace accident, which is sure to kill him. Yeah. And what he wants to do is get into a space station where the elite live. The elite have escaped Earth because of climate change. And they live on the space station. And one of the things they have on the space station is like perfect healing, basically. Like these pods that you go into and they just regenerate your body. And it's kind of funny because the director of the movie in an interview said that he didn't want to write about the future. He wanted to write about right now, which anyone who's read uh, Ursula Le Guin's Left Hand of Darkness will know that a lot of science fiction is not trying to predict the future. It is trying to talk about now by talking about the future. And Elysium is, of course, Elysium is the name of the space station, and it's a way of asking who gets access to healthcare, basically. I remember a friend of mine went to Thailand once, and he had to take anti-malaria pills. And I casually kind of asked him, like, say, malaria, is that a thing you die from? (laughs) and he said only if you're local because if you're local you can't pay for the hospitals if you're a tourist they'll take you to a hospital and you'll just pay the bill 
Yeah. And I remember like, it's just insane to think that there's a country where there are, I, I'm sorry, maybe it was Nepal. I think it was Nepal. Anyway, it's crazy to think that there's a country where there are hospitals and the hospitals won't treat the locals because the locals don't have money for the hospitals. But as a tourist, you can get access to them because you have your money. And we'll talk about money in the spoiler section. Yeah, and I think the movie also does a really good job of tying together climate change, the exodus of, well, blatantly European people. We'll talk about that as well. Unfortunately, (laughs) Jodie Foster was forced to do a terrible French accent to drive that point home. Terrible. (laughs) She's an amazing actress and I love her, but the accent is horrific. And to tie those ideas also with work and how work becomes not only inescapable, but also extremely brutal. Like how by denying you healthcare and deteriorating the state of your body, the system makes whatever work wants to do to your body acceptable as well. Like if you're healthy and you feel good about yourself, you're not going to let someone work you to death. But if you're already dirty and your teeth are falling out and everything hurts and you know that you're not going to get any treatment for your conditions, it becomes easier to also tell you, oh, we could have put a dead man switch on this radiation thing that if there's a person inside, the computer even recognizes that there's organic tissue inside of it when the radiation dose starts to hit him, but nothing happens. You would think that the first second that that happens it would turn off. But if you're already used to the idea that your body is forfeit, then you'll accept working in that factory because your body is already something being abused. And that also ties into the police. One of the first scenes is Matt Damon waiting in line to get on the bus to go to work and the police just randomly harass him because he has a criminal record and by harass I mean break his arm. Yeah. Right. So all levels of your life are communicating to you this idea that your body is malleable by the powers that be yeah so i feel like we're veering into analysis so i'll cut here for spoilers just it's a good action movie it deals with a lot of themes it sometimes gets a little bit messy with them but i still highly recommend it second watching and i wasn't disappointed yeah i think this is like the fourth time i've watched it because i screened it to friends and recommended it to a lot of people who ended up watching it with me and i still had a good time because, like you said, the action is well shot. Matt Damon is a great actor. Jodie Foster is a great actor. And it's just a, it's a good movie. Yeah. So I'll start us with kind of a basic point to begin our analysis, which is to say that there is good environmentalism and there is bad environmentalism. Yeah. So interestingly, this is a movie that starts in an earth that has been torn apart by climate change. We also see a similar thing in Interstellar. So, you know, the Earth is very dusty. The air is bad for you. The rich people who get to live on a space station when they come to Earth, they don't want to breathe the air. And then there's a space station where everything is fine. And the aesthetics of that space station is reminiscent of a lot of the aesthetics of the environmental movement. Specifically, it is a little bit reminiscent of a kind of fantastical commune style futurism, solar punk and stuff like that. It's all super green, super clean. And it shows a certain vision of environmentalism, thinking that what we need to do is maintain a very lush environment, a very, you know, beautiful gardens and stuff like that. And that's what the earth should look like. Now, there are a couple of problems with that. And it has to do with where the environmental 
movement began. So in her book, This Changes Everything, Naomi Klein speaks about how the environmental movement was basically started by lords that wanted their hunting grounds or the forests on their land to be protected. They wanted to go for strolls in nature and they like leaned very hard on the importance of nature for the human soul. Like a man, obviously a man, needs to go into nature to think about himself, yada yada yada. And this created a rift between environmentalists and workers, because workers have other concerns. Workers want jobs, they want, you know, their sustenance that sadly can only be secured by having a job. So when environmentalists wanted to shut down factories, the people working in those factories were like, what are you even talking about? These lush environments, that means nothing to me. I live in a small house. It's dirty because I don't have time to clean it because I have to work all day. And like the factory is my source of sustenance. So I can't just give it up for this kind of fantasy that you're suggesting. So Elysium is a fantasy for rich people. And the earth as it looks like in the movie is the way the environment currently is. But what do we want environmentalism to be about? We wanted environmentalism to be about preserving the environment and allowing humans to exist within it. We don't want to think that humanity is the virus or something like that. Yeah. The last thing I'll say about that is that if we manage to find a better balance with nature, we won't be living in like space houses surrounded by because that's not what nature kind of defaults to. To get, we actually spoke about this, to get a green lawn, you need to kill a lot of nature. Yeah. And I mean, it's costly, it costs a lot of resources, it's, it's nothing. Elysium is like the way that space station Elysium looks is just a fantasy that can only exist for certain rich people. It can't be the deliverance of the entire population. I think that's the point though, right? Like when the rich people left and they had to rebuild their society in a space station, that's the way they thought about a rich society, right? Lawns for everyone and palm trees everywhere. But I agree with everything you said. I want to take it one step further and say that actually the entire movie is bad environmentalism because of a simple word that appears in the first five minutes of the movie, and that is overpopulation. Yeah. The movie says the reason the Earth looks the way it was and the reason that Elysium was necessary is because of overpopulation. And a, I just, a different kind of bad environmentalism than the one I was describing. Yeah, but no, yes. totally. I, I agree with you. I think what you're talking about is kind of like a Mark Fisher thing, right? Like we can't imagine a good future. We can't imagine a good environmental future. You ask someone, let's say that we defeat climate change, what does the world look like? And he basically describes to you an American suburb. Yeah. But just all over the planet, which is inherently unsustainable. And I totally agree with you. That's not how a defeated climate change looks. That's not the way that looks. But even worse, I think, is this idea of overpopulation, which also repeats in District 9, by the way, and in a lot of Hollywood imaginations of climate disaster. Let me just say this as bluntly as I can. Overpopulation is a myth. It is not a thing. That is, it is a thing under the current division of labor and of wealth. It is not a thing that is objectively untenable. If you actually run the numbers, which scientists have, we are below the capacity of the planet to support humans. We have like three or four billion people left 
to add before the planet is technically and mathematically unable to support us. The -hmm. problem is that some of us take up so many more resources than the rest of us. So overpopulation will in the future be a problem, but it is not a now problem. It's not even a problem for the next 20 or 30 years, and for sure it is not the engine that is creating the warming that we have already seen in our lifetime. There is one thing at the basis that creates global warming, and that is capitalism. And capitalism's addiction to fossils. That is it. If we can dismantle capitalism or untether it from its addiction to petroleum, then that is the best thing that we can do to combat climate change. Now, there are other things we can do. That's not to say that there is no personal responsibility. I love this like leftist pendulum. Either it's only the system or only the individual. Yeah. It's somewhere in between. You totally should recycle if you can. You totally should eat less meat. And you totally should switch to hybrid cars and ride more bicycles and all that stuff. But also, none of that will matter unless we tackle the big systemic problems that we have. Right? Now, the big systemic problems are very, very hard, and they're hard-coded into our society. You know what is less hard? Eating the rich. Because mm. Kanye West flies hardwood experts from Sweden every time his parquet floor gets a buff. He flies in two experts from Sweden to the US to buff out that kink that he has in his parquet floors. Okay? Those two experts create more emissions than all the steaks that you could eat in a year, right? And that is just one example. I'm not even talking about super yachts and all that stuff. So for me, it was really disappointing. You know, this is the first time that I watched Elysium after I learned that overpopulation is nonsense. And it was really disappointing for me to see that word there. And really disappointing to hear that that is the problem. Last thing I'll say, and I'll connect to your vision of the future, a lot of leftists, especially our age and even younger, have this idea of the future as a place, or a time rather, where people give less birth, right? Where birth is controlled and planned and people give less birth. Now, let me make something very clear. Birth control is a human right. Contraception and abortion are human rights. Every single person on this planet must have the ability to decide whether they want to procreate. But that ability to decide should also be positive. If people want to have babies, they should have babies. And no government, yes, including China, if you want to do like the, oh, leftist hypocrisy, should be able to control whether a person can procreate or not. It is a basic right of people to do so. And imagining a future where that right is limited, supposedly to stop climate change, is bad environmentalism. And when you strip everything aside, you can disagree with me on the moral point, I think you're wrong, but you can't disagree with me on the political point because guess what? People will have babies. Yeah. It doesn't matter what you tell them and it doesn't matter how tyrannical you make the regime targeting their reproduction rights, they will have babies. That has literally been the case for all of human history. And it's just ridiculous and pointless to try and imagine a future where that is our 
escape from climate change. Yeah, I agree. And I want to go back to your point about bad environmentalism, because I do think that I squirm in my seat whenever overpopulation is mentioned. I think of overpopulation mostly as a distraction. It's a way of thinking about something that we shouldn't even try to solve. Nobody actually wants to solve. Nobody wants to deal with that stuff. Yeah. And also, it's not necessary to deal with it this for now. It's just a distraction. It's a way of saying the thing actually causing the problem is a thing we can't touch. So, uh. Yeah. And I think it's an oversight to include it in the movie because the way in which overpopulation is kind of suggested to be a problem is by saying that we have a scarcity of resources, right? And the movie does problematize the idea of scarcity. The people on Elysium think that, you know, they can't give from what they have because then, like, there wouldn't be enough for everyone. There has to be, like, this criteria of who gets anything. Yeah. But one of the things that happens in the movie, and we'll get to it maybe a little bit later, one important thing that happens is that in the end, just a group of immigrants goes to Elysium and they start using the healing machines. And what the movie says to you is there was never a scarcity problem. That, that's just not a problem. Like, yeah. give the people the medicine, heal the people, it'll be fine. It's fine. And that brings me to my first point. I want to focus on the healing machines to show mm -hmm. how the movie does a really good job of making that point of scarcity versus abundance through its design fiction. So design fiction is a pretty loaded term, and it's also a very new term. So I, I might take a few minutes to talk about design fiction. Okay. The idea of design fiction is a practice of exploring possible futures and criticizing them by creating speculative scenarios. And then looking at those scenarios through artifacts like clothing, communication devices, pills, food, and so on. Anything that is consumed and therefore designed. So an example of design fiction that I use in my workshops when I used to give them before the COVID is a backpack, the backpack exercise. Imagine a person in a future and we set the parameters of the future and they slip on the way out of the house and their backpack spills open on the street. What's in the backpack? Yeah. What do you see in the backpack? And then you can start thinking about what are everyday objects that someone in that future will have and explore all sorts of ideas for that stuff. There are many more other methodologies of design fiction. And even if you are unfamiliar with them, you have consumed design fiction because it is becoming increasingly more popular, especially in movies. Another example of design fiction using a methodology called diegetic prototypes, that is prototypes for artifacts that take part in the story and are not called out explicitly, like in Elysium, is the serial in Minority Report. Yeah. In Minority Report, Tom Cruise, we see him working on one of his reports and he tilts a box of cereal into his mouth to eat what remains there and you see the hologram on the side of the box chirping and singing the tune of the commercial for the cereal. That's a diegetic prototype because through that prototype you can understand that A, ads still exist, B, they are even more omnipresent than they are now, and C, they've expanded into disposable products. Stuff like cereal boxes which you throw away, 
maybe the screens or the holograms or whatever is so cheap you can use it on the boxes mm-hmm. so in elysium one of the greatest examples of design fiction the film does design fiction really fucking well it has a lot of really well thought out machines one of the best ones i think is the healing machines because the healing machines requires a dna stamp yeah you get stamped with your id and that idea why am i pronouncing it like idea <laughs> and that identification number is merged into your dna and then the machine needs to scan it before it continues so on one level that's just a really clever way to design such a machine it is very likely that any machine that can administer medicine to you automatically without a doctor needs to do what a doctor does which is pull up your file look at who you are what your disease is and so on so here the machine does that through that identification number but of course this identification number is also a plot device that's the second yeah. level in which this works it's a plot device because it explains to us why only max aka matt damon is the one who can be treated he can't just take frey which is the love interest Frey's daughter to Elysium and get healed because she doesn't have an identification. And on the third level, beyond the plot device, this is the way that scarcity is introduced into the plot. Because the machine which controls who gets identification is Elysian. Right? Elysium controls that ability. There's contraband and black markets on Earth, but that creates a different kind of scarcity. The scarcity of the black market, of a criminal. So you can see how this design works in all of these levels and works in really great ways. And that's the stamp of really good design fiction, that it's not just something that makes sense. It also is a plot device and moves the plot forward and also merges these ideas and themes that the fiction would like to tell you into the story. And the last thing I'll say... I said the other design fiction is really good. You can think about the hacking device that Spider uses to open all the doors in Elysium. Mm -hmm. He has this thing which he sticks on all the doors and uses it to hack it. It's super good because it makes sense. You have like a key card reader so he can, he sticks something on the reader. It's a plot device because every room takes more time because he needs to run the code. And it tells you that there are two kinds of people that can move freely on Elysium, the elite and the criminal. Yeah. Which is a very interesting point to make. And it goes on to the ships, to the weapons, to the police. There's a really good and powerful design fiction in this movie that hits you on all those levels. Yeah. From the examples, I kind of remember you sending me, I think, an article that deals with this that I think quoted, cited these examples. So maybe we'll put it in the show notes if I can remember which article that was. But anyway, I think I agree. It's one of the things I really like about the movie, the way, you know, it kind of speaks to the joy of science fiction, of, you know, cool gadgets, cool technology. But then rather than just use it as a device of pleasure, it actually forwards a plot and has a meaning. And I think it's really interesting that you say that the design itself kind of creates the division of elite and criminal. So the tattoo is kind of like a passport in many ways. It kind of makes you a citizen of Elysium. And because of that, the design fiction, Elysium is a space station, right? It's just a big machine. 
but it was also manufactured by someone, you know, in industry, by a commercial company. And that company also manufactured Elysium's military defenses, and it manufactured the citizenship system. So what you have is basically a technology, a design that lets you know what the military industrial complex is. Because it says citizenship, capitalism, or like the question of who has access to wealth, who has access to healthcare, nationalism, so like borders, all of these things are managed by the same systems. Currently, their technology is bureaucratic. It uses documents, but in Elysium, it uses electronic technology to police itself. So I find like the idea of design fiction and thinking like what every machine in the movie what kind of information it relays is really interesting. Yeah, I agree. And if I can maybe like move on to my second point for yeah, this first sure. one, I think another thing that we have to mention when we're talking about design fiction in the movie is the main piece of technology which drives it, which is the exoskeleton. I think the exoskeleton is a very interesting and very important piece of not just design fiction, but also a trope or a common story device in cyberpunk and science fiction in general. Yeah. And it's used in really interesting ways in the movie. So what is the promise of the exoskeleton? <laughs> Exoskeletons are things which have featured in games and movies and stories, most famously Starship Troopers, Call of Duty, and many, many other franchises have had exoskeletons. What is basically an exoskeleton? So exoskeletons are a fantasy, a wish fulfillment device, mm -hmm. a device that allows you to get the good of tech without the bad of tech. And I'll explain. Cyberpunk has this, by the way, and I'll get to it in the end, transphobic phobia of inserting technology into your body. Mm -hmm. You see it everywhere. We've spoken about Shadowrun on this podcast. The idea that you lose your humanity... By replacing parts of you with technology. By replacing parts of you. That idea, maybe I'll do it now, is A, transphobic, and B, ableist. It is mm -hmm. transphobic because it says there is a pure biological form of your body, and that should decide what you can do or not do with that body. Which is, of course, bullshit because we should be able to use technology to modify our bodies. If, for example, a person was assigned male at birth, but feels that they would be more comfortable in a female body, they should be able to, if we have the proper technological means to do it, and we do, they should be able to engineer their body to become female. Right? And that is A-OK. -okay. Yeah. It gets even more egregious when you think about the ableist angle. Because what's the difference between installing an ocular device, like a technological eye, and getting laser surgery? Yeah. Or wearing glasses, or using a wheelchair? What's the difference between putting on an exoskeleton and using a wheelchair? There is no difference. In each case, technology assists the body, which is okay. There is no essence it's literally called essence in shadow one yeah there is no this humanistic substrata of divinely given reality that we somehow dirty with our tech 
But exoskeletons come from that anxiety because they're not a part of you, right? The process by which the exoskeleton is engrafted onto the protagonist is displayed as antiquated and unnecessary. The only reason... Wait, now you're talking specifically about Elysium, right? Oh, yeah, 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 sorry. In Elysium, Max gets an exoskeleton engrafted onto him because he's so weak for radiation poisoning that he can't, like, go and shoot people in Elysium and take over the whole thing yeah. by his own powers. He needs the exoskeleton to keep him going. Basically to but give him like... an edge over his rivals. Yeah, exactly. Faster, stronger, better, all that stuff. But the exoskeleton is, like, last-generation tech, right? So you need, like, a bone surgeon which is a recurring character in Cyberpunk, by the way. And if yeah. you've played the game, you'll recognize it. This terrible person who, like, breaks apart your body and engrafts technology into it. Why is he a terrible person, by the way? But he always is. <laughs> the new exoskeletons are wearable. Yeah. That's much better, because then the technology doesn't need to dirty up your pure, pure body with its tech filth, right? So you get the best of both worlds. You get the power and abilities of technologically enhanced biological bodies but god forbid you don't have to put the tech actually inside your system only the poor people have to do that so that's an example of where design fiction works really well it just works for a bad idea so first of all i realized that i'm gonna have to (laughs) finally get to the end of the cyborg manifesto which i think is like a brilliant (laughs) document that i keep like thinking about but haven't it's a hard document to finish yeah, it's a hard document to read at all. Yeah, that's what I mean. But it really deals with it. And it says that basically feminism is about letting things into our body. Yeah. So it's, it's really interesting. And I think the transphobic angle is also very important. I think in a lot of transphobic literature, there's the discussion of the surgery as a kind of, you know, horror thing that you're supposed to be disgusted by. By the way, anti-abortion stuff also. Like, yeah, like to sure. talk about viscera. And it's all meant to make you forget about, like, the desires of humans being actually met. It's supposed to cause antagonism within you because I don't want my body cut up. But of course, if I had something in my body I didn't want, I would want it cut off. And it would be a happy thing for it to be cut off. So, I mean, I want to go, like, one step further on that and be materialist and say that it's not just that it wants you to feel revulsion against these things. It does that because those things make you powerful and they make the working class more powerful. Look, there is no difference between someone in the future using an exoskeleton to fight back against police and the sabot in the French Revolution using their shoes to fuck up the looms. Yeah. It's the same struggle. And workers can and should use technology to fight the oppressors. It's literally what Marx meant when he said we should seize the means of production. We should control the machines. We should control the tech that makes life possible and enhances it. And that tech can be a loom. It can be a piece of equipment, like agricultural equipment. It can be a mass production factory. And it can be an exoskeleton or a spaceship or a laser gun. It doesn't matter. The point is that we should not believe narratives that tell us that these technologies are somehow evil. Because then the next step is, and the only people who can use them are the adults, which are the rich people and the white people and the elites. Fuck that. Fuck that. That's also why I'm getting like 
extremely inflamed here, but it's fine. <laughs> That's where the idea comes from as well, that we should not let the working class lose its guns. Right? Yeah. The working class should have access to weapons because our oppressors have access to them as well. And the vilification of the machine gun, and of course, that gun control is important. I'm not saying that every single person should be able to walk into a shop and buy a gun. But when you see how gun control ends up being imposed, which is literally, do you have enough money? Yeah. Then you can own whatever the fuck you want. You understand that it's also a tool of the oppressor. Gun control should exist, but it should be enforced fairly to anyone so that if the working class doesn't have access to weapons, then no one has access to weapons. Yeah. And I feel if I knew more about ableist literature, like literature about ableism, I would probably be able to make a connection with the fact that, what's his name, Spider? Like the, yeah, he uses a cane to walk, right? He's yeah. disabled himself and he doesn't use an exoskeleton. And I think there's some significance there, but I don't really have a good grasp on it. But I want to go from what you said about who gets to use the technology and go to how this movie creates coalitions and talks about like coalitions and allyship mm-hmm. so i think this movie is really interesting in portraying who is your ally and who isn't your ally so the protagonist is paul he himself is not what americans would perceive as a foreigner and it's interesting, by the way, to pick Matt Damon. Matt Damon has played several working class characters, most notably in Goodwill Hunting. Yeah. But the first person who was supposed to play it was some South African guy, and it didn't pan out. Mm-hmm. And then they wanted the rapper Eminem to play it. That also didn't <laughs> pan out. But he also symbolizes the working class, right? Yeah, for sure. And... So what we have in Matt Damon is a white guy surrounded by a lot of like Mexicans. I think it was also filmed in Mexico, but he's poor. So his interests align with those of the foreigners around him. And I use the word foreigners here because this is an American movie. And when you see Mexicans, you think of them as foreigners. Of course, they're not foreigners where they're depicted. So you have these people and their whole aesthetic is that of immigrants, of refugees, right? They board ships and try to get into Elysium for healing. The refugees, they, they are in dire need of medical attention and it's being denied them and their ships are attacked. They get killed for trying to heal themselves with methods of healing that are readily available. So who are your allies? Your allies are the people who need the same things that you do. So if you are poor, if you are working class, obviously your allies are immigrants. The, to think of them as your competition, to think of them as stealing your job, is to miss the point because what you all need is access to the means of production, access to healthcare, access to what rich people are depriving for you. So that's a really interesting way to create coalitions. And then there is, in this movie, a pushback against fake ways of making coalitions. So who are our enemies in this movie? It's obviously the rich people who control Elysium. And again, in another interview, like the director is like, I imagine the world of like rich assholes having access to everything and the poor having nothing. And of course, this is what the movie looks like. And this is what reality looks like. Yeah. So what's interesting, this movie was created during the Obama administration. 
And I don't think it's a coincidence that in Elysium, the president of Elysium or whatever is a person of color and he has a name, but he's not a main character or anything. Yeah. But the main antagonist is a woman who wears these pantsuits that are very evocative of Hillary Clinton. So interesting. it's interesting that while the president was Obama and the secretary of state was Hillary Clinton, we had this movie. And these were years in which anti-war resistance was having trouble getting volunteers because people didn't want to protest against Obama. They liked Obama. Yeah. And, you know, leftists really hate Obama, not because he himself is like the worst thing that ever happened, but because of the kind of promise that he was and the way in which he just served the interests of neoliberals, just like every other president. He's not an especially bad president. He's just one more, but he was so detrimental to the movement because he confused people because they thought, oh, we actually managed to get a black president elected. That means that we've made headway against racism. So I think the really interesting thing the movie does is show how, you know, it's it's jokingly called intersectional imperialism, right? Just because you have a person of color being the president, just because you have a woman ordering the military to execute people, that doesn't improve the material conditions of anyone. And I'll just say that there's a really smart scene, I think, where there's this guy that we haven't discussed yet who is a kind of mercenary working for... Krugel. Yeah, Krugel. He works for the bad guys. And he's, by the way, his whole aesthetic is mercenary in Iraq. The way we get introduced to him, he's like on a rooftop grilling. And he like throws a beer at the people under him. Like he doesn't care about the people. He lives in like the place of the poor people, but he doesn't care about them. He's above them. So that's the aesthetic for him. And And I think also just to say like it's a South African actor yeah and neil bloomkamp is south african himself and i think everything he does is in the lens of south africa and the apartheid yeah so i think kruger is for sure like a blackwater mercenary but he's also i mean uh, we're not going to get into it but modern pmcs and mercenaries and stuff like that a lot of what they learned they learned in south africa in the apartheid and guess where else (laughs) yeah israel yeah, the only other place which has apartheid. Okay. Yeah. So there's a scene with Kruger where he abducts the protagonist's love interest and he's holding her and the movie doesn't and I appreciate it. It doesn't get graphic with it, but he's sexually harassing yeah. the protagonist's love interest. And at the same time he gets a call from the military She's the Secretary of Defense. Yeah. He gets yeah. a call from the Secretary of Defense. And he answers with a very respectful kind of like, yes, ma'am. And it's like, is this person respectful to women? No, he is not. It's just that there happens to be a woman like higher than him in the pecking order, but that doesn't change the material conditions of women under his. Yeah. It's interesting to me that you took the allegory or analogy or whatever of Elysium towards the Obama administration. I think that's really accurate. And I did not consider... Delacour, that's the Secretary of Defense's name, to be like a Hillary Clinton thing. I totally agree. I just did not think about that at all because in my mind, it's a very thin and obvious European Union allegory, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's a council. They have a Secretary of Defense, which is a very EU kind of position. Yeah. They have a council. Sure, there's a president, but he's the president of the council, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that it's not Obama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's both, yeah. 
So there's a council and they all vote on it and they dress themselves up as a humane organization, yeah. right? Like, how could you shoot those innocents? We told you to do it quietly, which <laughs> is the exact thing that the European Union would say. And I think this entire thing is an allegory to the refugee crisis, yeah. right? Europe is this haven where you have healthcare and you have all this abundance. Mm-hmm. And I think Los Angeles, which is where the movie takes place, like the Earth location, but Earth in general is styled, you know, to be a favela and a ghetto and Gaza and all of these places at the same time. Yeah, it was filmed also, in a favela, by the way. Yeah. And also Syria. Let's remember that the Syrian civil war broke out in 2011, mm-hmm. two years before this film was released. And I think this film is heavily under the shadow of that war and the beginning of the large numbers of drowning refugees in the Adriatic Sea. Yeah. Right, on the way to Europe. Well, that's exactly what someone like Angela Merkel would say. Like Angela Merkel accepts refugees to a certain extent, but then their treatment is horrible in Germany. And they don't do enough against countries like Greece and Italy and others that murder refugees, yeah. right? But how they'd like to present themselves is the civilized, benign, humane sort of organization. Just do it quietly. Yeah, Why are there's you... a really evocative scene where three refugee ships are attempting to penetrate Elysium. One of them gets shot down, and it's like, yeah, that's the coastal guard. That's what they would do yeah. to refugees. And then one yeah. of them gets there and then he is immediately arrested before they get access to the healthcare they were trying desperately to get to. And it's like... And gets deported. Yeah. That, those are deportation camps. Like, yeah, exactly. So I want to sum up with my last point and you can sum up with your last. I mentioned when we were discussing the genre of the movie that it's not cyberpunk because it doesn't have neon. Right? That's like one of the main things that it's missing. Yeah. And I also introduced this idea of cleanliness or lack of it, rather. Lots of punk is about being dirty. But I think for me, the more that I consume cyberpunk, mm-hmm. and this is where the video game is going to come in, the first question that I ask myself is, how clean is this? By which I mean, not how clean the world around me is, but how much focus does cleanliness as a good thing get? So think about the Matrix. Yeah. The world is dirty like outside of the matrix and inside the matrix as well but babylon is very dirty Mm -hmm. but the aspiration when characters are in their ideal form inside of the matrix they are sleek clean and sharp Mm -hmm. right their hair is gelled back they have super cool sunglasses trench coats that are like pitch black and all that stuff now of course the main reason for that is that it's fucking awesome right it's (laughs) cool it's fuck but It also sends a message and it says, if you could have your perfect form, you would be spotless, right? If you look at Cyberpunk, the game, it's the same thing. Like you start in squalor and then you spend the rest of the game getting bling, getting (laughs) shiny cars, shiny clothes, shiny weapons, shiny augments, and so on. And everything is around this pursuit of cleanliness. So when I look at something like that, it makes me suspicious because it feels to me like the creator or the writer of whatever I'm consuming thinks that that's what a good future looks like. Like if only everyone was cool, if only everything was clean and streamlined and sleek, then that would be better. Whereas Elysium or Dishonored, 
or other good cyberpunk creations like Blade Runner yeah make the statement about the state of things the dirt of things the breakdown of technology is not just something to be avoided as an individual it's not some just you know scrub yourself hard enough until it gets yeah. from underneath your fingernails it is a condition of the social structures that were erected by the powers that be around the setting right it's something to be resisted and fought against because it underpins the system right there's a really good scene in the second blade runner where the scene with the drone where there's like a drone firing at him and mm-hmm. he's like in a garbage field and the garbage field is endless i like just keeps going on and on and on and it's mm-hmm. this when i was watching the movie it was kind of like a counterpoint to the city which tries to order everything and takes the garbage and pushes it down yeah pushes it below the ground whereas here the excess sprawls across the wasteland right which was a really good point and elysium does that as well one of the things i didn't like is the final scene shows frey major spoilers probably no one's listening because it's been an hour and we're still (laughs) talking i can just spoil the thing max dies Mm -hmm. he sacrifices himself to open elysium to everyone and then you see frey the daughter has been healed and now she's wearing a crisp white shirt Mm. like this uber clean uber sanitized t-shirt it's not just a t-shirt it's like that semi-dress buttoned up shirt that you see in american laundry detergent commercials right and it says release and freedom and victory mean cleanliness and orderliness and sanitation which is i think in stark contrast to the rest of the fucking movie yeah because i was just i was just going to say that if you remember nothing else from the movie you can remember Elysium looking initially like an environmental fantasy, maybe. And then when the movie progresses and ships just like bash into it and, you know, destroy these fields of green, you're like, yes, do so, please. Because people yeah. need the resources. <laughs> Fuck your lawns. Yeah, totally. So it's this attitude towards cleanliness and sleek aesthetics that makes the difference between good and bad cyberpunk and on balance elysium falls into the good side yeah it shows the dirtiness is something to be resisted but it's not this bad thing you can still have a good life in someone that is not 100 percent spotless right and you can still have friendships and love and you can still triumph without becoming pristine yeah and we should be wary of the pristine yeah so I want to make my own point about the resolution of the movie. And I want to talk about how what winning in the movie looks like. And the protagonist wins, although he dies. He yeah. manages to change something in the computer to make everyone a citizen of Elysium. Now, because of yeah. what I said earlier about coalitions, this symbolizes two things. It's basically class and citizenship. It's belonging to the rich class and it's belonging to the sort of nation that is Elysium. And... This raises the question of, is the money in Elysium fake? Mm-hmm. Are the conditions that allow it fake? Is it just the case that if we forgot about money, which is the thing that the protagonist does, right? He just erases the records. Would everything be solved? Will the differences with the class differences be solved? Yeah. So the first time I watched the movie, I didn't like this ending because I thought it was a little bit simplistic. I was like, you can't just delete money and everything will go away. There are other ways of tracking class. But I think that was a 
too simplistic a reading. I think this is a, this is a plot device that, that is supposed to be metaphorical of other things. So under capitalism, is money fake? You'll hear a lot of leftists say yes and say things like, you know, money is just a, a printout on the screen somewhere or something like that. It doesn't really mean anything. And I think, so money is fake to a degree. Money is as fake as capitalism. Yeah. And that means not so fake, but also kind of fake. So on the one hand, money is the way that capitalism tracks transactions. And this is extremely important for capitalism because capitalism needs power to be measurable and transferable easily. I thought about this lately because people have been moving away from, and when I say people moving away, some, like very few people are moving away from Facebook to Signal and stuff like that, sort of because of the Trump Twitter stuff, sort of because like a new thing between Facebook and WhatsApp. And they look at it and they think like, you can't consumer your way out of big tech controlling your life because the problem is that they have immense amounts of capital and capital is faster than you. Capital will move faster than you. If you move to a different platform, capital will buy that platform and then make you miserable there. So it's a kind of a fool's race. This is also a point made by Piketty in a very important book called Capital in the 21st Century, where it says basically that Countries can't really regulate capitalism because capitalism is faster than the countries. You know, if you raise taxation on the rich, the rich will just move their assets to different places before the law goes into effect and you've basically already lost. So money is important to understand. Money is managing the world and you can't wave it away. But on the other hand, money is also a representation of scarcity. It also tries to tell you that there isn't enough money to do something. You know, now that the Democrats are in control, you hear all of the Republicans moving to talk about the deficits. And that's yeah. always the case. Republicans use talking about money to convince the working class that nothing can be done for them. So we don't have enough money to help the working class. I feel like right now this will pan out a little bit differently because some concessions would have to be made for the working class because of the crisis. That's always the case. When there's a crisis, working class gets some relief because otherwise they would just die. Yeah. And you can expect that once the crisis is sort of resolved, we'll go back to austerity. And the Democrats just like, you know, raise their hands and say like, oh, well, all of these Republicans are right about the deficits. Of course, they run tremendous deficits trying to give a lot of money to the rich, but now we have to be the responsible people and do austerity. Yeah. So I think the thing about the fakeness of the money is Money isn't fake. Money is something we should keep track of. There isn't an infinite amount of resources. It's just a fake way of talking about the real thing. And I think what the end of the movie is supposed to symbolize is that the system can be resisted. We can work with a different system. I mean, not even resisted. It can be abolished. We can have different ways of managing things. And if we were to overthrow it, the things that we need that it produces would still be there. So... If we manage to abolish capitalism, we will not lose the healthcare that was created or the medicine that was created under capitalism, nor the methods of creating more healthcare. We would just lose the system that says who gets access to it and who doesn't get access to it. And the movie doesn't go into like, how do we now decide who gets access to stuff? But it implies that there are better ways. And I think that's kind of my point about money. Money isn't fake. Yeah. It's a really bad way of deciding who gets to do what. I agree with you. I think just to like paint maybe a final point on one of the things you said, money is fake if we dismantle class. Mm -hmm. Money is the tool or the blood which flows in the veins of the body of capitalism. And 
until we get rid of that body, that money is not fake because it can do stuff like bomb people. Yeah. Or price them out of a job or immiserate them or do all of those really real things. But if we could get rid of the body, then once that body is totally gone, it's like basic Lenin, then money will disappear. I think one of the gotchas that I hear the most as a leftist is, but how will people be janitors under socialism? How, why would they do that job if they won't get paid? Except they will get paid. Like, wages exist yeah. under socialism and under communism. Somewhere down the line, and now it depends on how you want to read Lenin, maybe hundreds of years in the future, maybe less, the class society will disappear and the dictatorship of the proletariat will no longer be necessary because there won't be any classes anymore. And then there won't be any money because we live in an abundant reality where every single person can get whatever they want. But until we get to that place, we will have wages. They will just be collectively bargained, fair, tied to cost of living, will ensure that everybody has a home and water and air to breathe. And they can also do fun stuff like have hobbies and consume art and do all that stuff. And that if they don't want to work for wages, yeah. they can get a basic income, not UBI, by the way. Don't believe that bullshit. Yeah. They'll get a basic income that will allow them to do other things like write poetry and paint pictures or whatever they want to do. So yeah. if this sounds like utopian, it's already kind of happening in countries in the EU. Basically, it's what happens if you don't do wars and also like try to treat people fairly. Yeah, I mean, in Europe, it happens for a part of the population, yeah. larger than America, but still a part of the population because inherently the European state does not want immigrants, everyone, yeah. immigrants, and they need the unemployed and the homeless because they are incentive for the labor market, right? Yeah. Because they're not doing socialism. They're just doing social democracy at best or capitalism light. Yeah. Um, I just want to say that, like, when I hear that point about janitors, all I want to say is, Oh, so we agree that capitalism is about starving people so that they will do menial labor yeah. at your behalf. Yeah, no, of course, of course, of course. But specifically here, it's like this idea that money will cease to exist under socialism, which is ridiculous because we'll still have scarcity. It will just be less artificial. Yeah. So bringing everything together and kind of like tying the bow around Elysium. I think the last thing I want to leave you with around that going into the computer and like that's one of the most ridiculous parts it says like add all citizens of earth to system yeah. or something ridiculous and he hits y and it like kind of adds everyone that's the only thing that i like about cryptocurrency mm-hmm. cryptocurrency is the pyramid scheme by the way and it's bullshit but what it does is expose how all of the rest of our financial system is a pyramid scheme yeah right the problems with cryptocurrency is the problems with the stock market, is the problems with the money market, is the problem with the housing market, and all of these markets just more blatant. And that like, beep boop, let me go on my computer and be richer, is what like cryptocurrency is trying to sell you, and what Elysium tells you, shut the fuck up. <laughs> like, fuck you. Why should like, your bits and bytes on a machine decide that this person doesn't get healthcare? Yeah. And I think my estimation is like, Elysium is an action movie, so it's a simplistic fantasy about fighting someone, but instead of it being a liberal fantasy where you fight the inherently bad people to become like a better liberal than them, it's about like working class people fighting rich assholes. So 
that's kind of cool. Yep. Yep. So have you been reading, watching anything interesting? Yeah. I actually wanted to tell you that I watched the Snowpiercer show. Oh, how is that? And it's better than the movie. Oh. It's, yes, it has more time to explore the ideas and the world around it. So it's deeper in its critique and it makes really interesting points about alliances between the working class and the poor, like the middle working class and the poor against the rich. And it makes a lot of points about law enforcement and agriculture. And it's really good. And also David Diggs is amazing. Yeah. And does a really good job. And Jennifer Connelly is great. And the design is really good. I really enjoyed it. And I have no idea why it was panned as it was by critics. It's really good. I suspect that when something is like Good and leftist, yeah. it doesn't jive well yeah. with critics. Yeah. I, if we're talking about how neoliberals erase stuff, I've been listening to some folk music, some American folk yeah. music, Woody Guthrie and Peter Singer and stuff like that. Yeah. And it's fun and fine. It's kind of an old style of music. And what I do find interesting is like reading about their kind of movement, how they were like communists and they belong to the workers' movement. And it's really interesting to read about the history of worker organization and, you know, socialist movements because that history doesn't get told a lot and a lot of elements of that history get forgotten. So one thing that I find interesting, the best seller that came out of the BLM movement, like if you're want to ask like what book got a lot of attention is white fragility yeah and white fragility was written by someone who does corporate hr training stuff so that's what all the discourse was about and that's a discourse about how we all carry racism within our heart and we have to cleanse ourselves of racism and to a degree that's kind of true we should try not to be racist and also like the pernicious ways in which we like we behave racistly without really understanding it. But it kind of gives the feeling that, like, you know, people have always been anti-Black. And just, like, now with neoliberalism, we can finally atone for our sins or something. Like, it's really terrible. And, like, I heard this song from Peter Singer where he's, like, talking about how race-baiting can, like, fuck up your attempts to unionize. And that was written in 1941. And, <laughs> and they have another song called Hold the Line, where it's about like workers stopping fascists from lynching a black performer. Yeah. And it's like, and that's in 47. It's like, there has always been like people willing to risk their lives to fight racism. It's just that they were communists, so they don't get spoken about that much. I mean, yep. and that's I not to say that there have never been communist racists. Like, that's not the point I'm making here. Yeah. Cool. So, cool. for more cool science fiction and leftist science fiction, uh, you can go to anarchysf.com. If you want to shout out anything about this episode or any other episode or give us recommendations, you can tweet at anarchy underscore sf. And what are we doing next time? What are we doing? I think we're talking about Oval or are we talking about right. Dishonored? What do we want to talk about? We're going to do Oval. Oval. Elvia Wilkes Oval. Go read it. Yeah. For now, I haven't read all of it, but it loves Berlin, so I'm on board with it. <laughs> all aboard. Cool. Thank, Thank you for, for listening. listening. Bye. Bye.